This podcast was first broadcast on Fresh FM, the top of the South community access radio station. For more information on Fresh FM, as well as links to other great local podcasts, go on our website freshfm.net or download the accessmedia.nz app. What would you do if you knew you were going to die or that someone you loved was going to die? Well, guess what? You are and you do. No my hari mai and welcome to Death Walker's Guide to Life, a euphemism-free show that deals with everything about death and dying you wished you knew but were afraid to ask. In it, we'll explore together how thinking and talking about death can help you live a life without regrets. Ko Kerry Sunderland toko inua. My name is Kerry Sunderland and I'm the host and producer of this show, which is first broadcast on Fresh FM in Titoihu, the top of Aotearoa, New Zealand's South Island, and then available around the world on many of the major podcast platforms. Deathwalker's Guide to Life is sponsored by CNF Legal in Fakatu Nelson. Did you know that in New Zealand roughly 1,500 people die every year without a will? Don't be one of those people. And be wary of DIY. Homemade wills can be trickier and take longer to get through probate. So don't cut corners. It will cost you and your loved ones in more ways than you can imagine. CNF Legal's specialist team of solicitors and legal executives can help you with every aspect of planning for the inevitable end of your life. So give Marie or Robin a call on 03 545 Thank you for joining me for Episode 5 of Deathwalker's Guide to Life. In today's show, we're going to be exploring some of the ways death finds its way as an expression in art, particularly art made by those who have been fortunate to grow up either outside or on the periphery of the weird world. Now, in this show, you're probably going to hear me use this term quite a bit. Weird stands for Western, educated, industrialised, rich and democratic. Um, It's basically the culture that I grew up in in Melbourne in suburban Melbourne in Australia. But there are many uh, Indigenous wisdom traditions that I think we are now all learning from, um, and one of those in particular is the Māori, who have a very strong and powerful and effective tikanga or a set of customs around death and dying, which really makes for better bereavement um, for the loved ones left behind. So joining me in the studio today is poet, playwright and wahini toa, Donna McLeod. But first, it's time for Death in Print. In this segment, in each show, I talk about a new book or article that has something interesting to say about death and dying. Today, I'd like to talk about Hatches for Hawk by Helen MacDonald. It's an award-winning memoir I read back in 2016 when I was enrolled in a Master of of Arts in Creative Writing at the International Institute of Modern Letters at Victoria University of Wellington. During my MA, I wrote the first draft of my own memoir, Beyond the Blue Door. When I first decided I wanted to share my story, about five years before that, I'd started reading books about other people's experiences with death and dying. The very first was The Young Widow's Book of Home Improvement by Virginia Lloyd. Others included Layla's Story by Vanessa Gorman, The Iceberg, a memoir by Marion Coutts, Widow Basquiat by Jennifer Clement, The Year of Magical Thinking by Joan Didion, The Sum of Our Days by Isabella Allende, and A Death in the Family by Carl Ove Kernelskad. 
As part of the MA, though, we were required to read other books related in some way to our own story. In selecting my personal reading list for the MA year, I saw the opportunity to broaden and deepen my experience as a reader so that it would expand the way I thought and felt when writing about death and dying, loss and bereavement, and loving and living. As I read, I often kept notes or turned over the corners of pages. <laughs> People don't like that all the time. Um, and I often kept quote, wrote down quotes that inspired or provoked something in me. I wanted my reading journal to be a useful resource that I could continue to consult in the years to come. So I included a lot of those quotes in, my, in the journal. So, and actually that's borne out to be a, the, the thing that happened with my journal. Because when I first saw the program for Word, the Christchurch Writers' Festival, I was thrilled to see that the author of H is for Hawk, Helen MacDonald, who is a British writer and historian, um, would be appearing in one of the far away near digital sessions. And um, so I immediately bought a ticket. Anyway, back to 2016, just quickly, um, and why I selected H's for Hawk to be one of the books I included in my reading journal. Well, there were a few obvious reasons. It won both the Costa Book of the Year Award and the Samuel Johnson Prize for Nonfiction in 2014. It is both a literary memoir and an international bestseller. So here we go, award-winning international bestseller with literary cred. I too aspire to publish one of those one day, so uh, that was a good reason to choose that book. But the main reason I wanted to read H.S. for Hawk was because it's about a raptor, a bird of prey, and my own story touches on the significance in my life of the Australian sea eagle, or osprey, and its slightly smaller cousin, the Brahmini kite. Actually, they are often mistaken for each other, although it's relatively easy to tell them apart. The osprey has a white belly, while the kite has a brown one. Both are found along the eastern coastline of Australia and filled the sky in the Byron Bay region where I was living with when my first husband Steve died. I'd been fascinated with birds of prey from a very young age, but these two birds became even more significant during my bereavement. Like me, Helen MacDonald was fascinated with raptors from a young age, although perhaps even more so. She was, from being a very young child, determined to become a falconer, learning the arcane terminology and reading all of the classic books. Years later, when her father died and she was struck deeply by grief, she became obsessed with the idea of training her own goshawk. She bought Mabel for £800 on a Scottish quayside and took her home to Cambridge, ready to embark on the long, strange business of trying to train the wildest of animals. Here in Aotearoa, New Zealand, uh, her book, H's for Hawk, is published by Penguin Books, which describes the memoir as an unflinchingly honest account of her struggle with grief during the difficult process of the hawk's taming and her own untaming. This is a book about memory, nature and nation, and how it might be possible to reconcile death with life and love. Naturally, H is for Hawk is yet another book that had a profound impact on both the way I think about writing and storytelling, but also how I have moved through my own grieving process. When I began reading it, I found myself bathed in melancholy because I couldn't help but compare myself to Helen and judge myself pretty harshly as a writer. I questioned what I was doing attempting to write something about the Brahmini kite when I had zero expertise in any aspect of ornithology other than being able to admire them soaring in the sky above me. And in my comparison to Helen's experience, my retreat from the world after my husband Steve died felt so inane. 
Then I realized my relationship with these eagles was all about the metaphorical significance as remote, unattainable, unattainable soarers rather than my intimate relationship with them. And that my retreat from the world gave me the fortitude to start construction of both my new self and my new life. And then I just got absorbed in the story. I love the world McDonald creates and how honest she is about her place in it. For example, this is a little one of the quotes that I uh, recorded in my journal. She writes, It was about this time a kind of madness drifted in. Looking back, I think I was never truly mad. More mad north-north-west. I knew I wasn't mad-mad because I'd seen people in the grip of psychosis before, and that was madness as obvious as a taste of blood in the mouth. The kind of madness I had was different. It was quiet and very, very dangerous. It was a madness designed to keep me sane. At first, the summaries and analyses of T.H. White's 1951 book, The Goshawk, one of the classic texts that Helen had first read as a child, annoyed me. Although White never really comes across as a likeable character, I grew to enjoy the digressions as much as the main story. As he provided her with the inspiration to love raptors, I appreciated it when she wrote, I have to write about him because he was there. He was just part of the story, of her story. And then his world became as vivid as Helen's did with observations about the importance of place, like this. The mirror works both ways. The lines between the man and the landscape blur. When White writes of his love for the countryside, at heart he is writing about a hope that he might be able to love himself. And on the multiplicity of cells we carry with us, Helen MacDonald writes, But what I should have realised too, on those northern roads, is that what the mind does after losing one's father isn't just to pick a new father from the world, but pick new selves to love them back with. The only aspect of the story that I thought could have been clearer was the time frame, but that's perhaps just my own confusion. I found it difficult to calculate how much time had elapsed between her father's death and his memorial, or over the duration of the book. My best guess is about nine months, and as someone who paid great attention to the passing of time in the year that followed Steve's death, I wanted to know. Perhaps I will get the chance to ask Helen this question at word. The far away near is, I'm led to believe, uh, Word's very own custom digital venue that promises to offer the intimacy of a night at the pub with friends and a favourite writer. It's basically a pop-up bar with 12 tables of six, each with special international guests, sitting life-sized at our tables via freestanding FHD or full high-definition display screens, and we'll get the chance to ask them questions. So I'm looking forward to it very much. While Word was originally scheduled to take place in late August, it was postponed until November 10th to the 13th. So the session is now actually taking place on the same weekend that this episode first goes to air on Fresh FM in the top of the South Island. So I'm heading there after pre-recording today's show. Of course, since Word is now taking place at Alert Level 2, we'll be masked up and socially distanced. If you want to find out what the faraway session with Helen MacDonald was like, visit my website, deathwalkersguidetolife.com on or after Tuesday, November 16th, and you'll find a brief review there. It's now my great pleasure to welcome to Deathwalkers Guide to Life, Donna McLeod, who is a writer, poet and playwright who lives in Mortuweka with her husband, Paul Bennett. 
where she is mana whenua, surrounded by Fano on McLeod Bennett Papakayanga, that's Fano land, in the Rohi district of Te Atiawa and Nati Rarua and Te Afena Marae. Donna cut her theatre teeth, so to speak, by being part of Te Oho Whakari Māori Theatre Group and is one of the founders of Te Oroha. We first met after being published in Headlands, New Stories of Anxiety in 2018 and were invited to appear in a panel discussion at Kush Coffee in Whakatū Nelson, hosted by our region's fabulous independent bookstore, Volume. And that was back in June 2019. And we were on the panel alongside the book's editor, Naomi Arnold. Then we appeared again in a panel session titled The Mind is Prison at the Royal Australian and New Zealand College of Psychiatrists Conference in September 2019, (laughs) again with Naomi. Um, So that was an interesting experience. Um, In the book, my essay is titled Scared to Death, and it's basically my musings on the link in my life that I've felt between anxiety and my own fear of death, both of one my own death and the death of, of my loved ones. So, Tenakwe Donna, welcome to the show. Can you tell me a little bit about your contribution voices, which, which you got published in Headlands? Oh, namahinui o te rā. Um, really, before I do that, I um, need to mihi to my cousin Tracy. Um, Tracy was one of the people who passed away in the van um, accident in Levin yesterday. Um, And uh, she was on her way home to Taranaki. So I need to mihi to our mountain, Taranaki, and to the people, to my whanau of Taranaki, um, who are waiting for her to come back home. Uh, I'd like to meet to her family and to all the other people who passed away and all the other people who witnessed um, their passing. And um, we have had, in Motueka, we've had the tragedy of losing one of our young people, Jamie, and I need to meet to her and her family. And a really good friend, um, um, and that's Nuki Hannon, um, you know, one of those great rugby men of our area and a real character in Motueka. So, um, you know, namahi um, aroha to them all and their families, but particularly to my uh, cousin Tracy because um, I just heard this morning and my phone's been ringing and I've spoken to her, her sister and her children. So um, my thoughts are very much with her and her whānau now. Um, I guess when you talk about voices, it is about that anxiety of being a older Māori woman who is expected to stand. So when people pass away, or when people are about to pass away, I find out very quickly, and I'm contacted. So I've had the privilege of sitting with a lot of people who are passing or being with Fano who have just lost someone that they love. And that can be either in their homes or in hospitals. It can be at 2 o'clock in the morning. It can be 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Um, as a manafinua, as someone within our community of Motueka, and also even though most of the people are Māori, I've also been involved with non-Māori people as well. And um, 
It is a, a privilege to be in that position and um, to be surrounded by support people who are also part of that process of making sure that our tikanga, the things that we do that are Māori, are being able to be carried out, are explained to the whānau of what is happening. Um, because so many of our whānau no longer know. We're in positions now where our marae is closed for tangiana, so we're now holding tangi at homes. So how do we do that under level two, level one? You know, how are we doing that within our levels and still maintaining the mana, the prestige of the person who has passed away and acknowledging and holding this, that space of supporting both the wairua, the spiritual aspects, and also the tinana, you know, the bodily, the body of the um, person who's passed, mm -hmm. but also the body of the people that they leave behind. So um, this is the role that I speak about in Voices, that um, we basically just automatically turn, as, as soon as my phone rings and I know in my head I'm going, right, what sort of family are they? What do they need? And normally I'm buying toilet paper, tea bags, coffee, sugar, Milo. You know, you go into the house all ready to go. And so whether you're going to be sitting next to the person who's passing or comforting the family or whether you're just going to make cups of tea and you're just going to, you know, scope out the environment and see where you're needed. And, you know, I'm lucky that I actually have um, the network of our iwi hapu um, to be able to, and whānau, to be able to say, you know, pick up the phone and go, right, they need... You know, we need a sheep, we need a pig, we need <laughs> chickens, you know, we need loaves of bread, we need tables, you know, we need mattresses. Um, to be in a community uh, and to have those resources is a very special thing. And we are lucky within the Sorohi of Motueka that we are able to mm. um, maintain that mana mm. and be there for our people. Yeah, I really want to acknowledge um, your the the loss, the terrible, tragic loss of your cousin Tracy, and um, and thank you for coming into the studio today on you know what is I'm sure a very emotional day and and a big day. So I really appreciate that. I think I wasn't sure whether you were going to be talking about Tracy today, and I completely understand and respect the mihi to her. Uh, but I guess one thing that really strikes me is that for me, having grown up in a, a weird culture, so I call it a weird culture, Western, educated, industrialised, rich and democratic, you know, I, that all, all the traditions around death and dying were lost and I grew up in, in a home where it was taboo to talk about death. So it's not my natural default to, to you know, to, it's, so it's an inquiry and it's an, um, curiosity about and, but for you, uh, as Māori, you just you just talk it. You talk talk straight about these things, don't you? I think we, um, you know, and it, it is no longer all Māori. Mm. You know, and, oh, it's and growing. That is, yes, that is yes. probably the sadness that many of our people do not know what to do. Mm. You know, I, okay, but. They're willing to give it a go. They just need guidance. Yes. And so I'm lucky enough to be able to give a little bit of guidance, but to have the backup of people who have huge amounts of knowledge. Mm. Um, I 
I loved my cousin Tracy very much and I can remember when she was born. And so um, for, for us it's normal to speak of people who um, are dying, um, who have just died and who are going to die. Um, and it's about keeping... Um, and that was the saddest thing. Uh, Tracy, I grew up in with my um, mother and great-grandmother and um, my father and then later a stepfather. And um, we, we just... Two very different um, upbringings in many ways. My mother, so I'm Whangai, so I'm adopted within my family. So at, after um, a while, I was given to my birth mother's auntie. So I had this wonderful father called Colin Sutherland McLeod, and I still carry his name as to my children. And um, he died when I was six. And the amazing thing about that was before he had passed away, my grandfather the, um, or great-grandfather, the husband of my great-grandmother who lived with us, had passed away. So I had gone to, I had been with him while he was dying. Um, I was often left in his room to keep him company and things like that. And I loved to talk. So, you know, I was left to talk to him. <laughs> um, and I, as I said, I was about five. And um, I, you know, I went to his tangi. And tangihana back in 1970, we were still doing things of, you know, we do this this wailing, this wailing. And, you know, I watched the Greeks wail. I watched, you know, just about every group has a mourning wail, you know, and... I listen, and, and, and that's because it comes from the stomach for women. It's, it, you know, it's just your gut. It's your, just your puku just opening up and grieving. Well, you know, I went to my great-grandfather's tangi, and women were doing that all around me. You know, we talk about tears and hupe, which is snot, you know, in, intermingling. And, you know, you, you would just meet these women with, you know, in, the, in this COVID time, you know, with snot and tears just falling. And that real mourning, I mean, tangihana are so special for me because that is your time to mourn that person. That is your time to grieve, to to for your body to release mm. that 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 grief, and that's why the three days, the five days, is so important for us as a people that you are able to fully get it out. You're also able to say what you like about the person who's died. So, you, you know, at night, um, you know, we do more karakis and, you know, there's morning karakis, there's afternoon karakis. Every kai is blessed and there's lots of kai because every time a visitor comes in, there's more kai, you know, so there's always food. Um, so, you know, after the karakia at night, after the church service at night, and it doesn't matter whether you're ratana, Catholic, Presbyterian, whatever, you could be Buddhist, you know, it doesn't really matter. It's just an acknowledgement of a, of a higher being, you know, of a life force so you know after that service 
we go around the room and you can say what you like about the person and it's great fun. You know, if they talked a lot, you said. If they owed you money, you lay it on the floor. If they were bastard, you say it, you know, because you're never going to have the time to say it to, in Parker terms, their face again as such, you know. So it's all laid out and it's such a healthy way to grieve. So take me, you know, a few months later to when my dad passed away when I was six. He was Pākehā, and I was not allowed to go to his funeral. Oh. So I was kept, and my brothers and I had to stay with our next-door neighbour, um, and I think an older child, a teen, you know, and we, we sat at home, and we had to wait till everyone came back, and then we got to pass around plates of cake and things like that and remember people you know patting my head and you know just you know just looking at me and crying and things like that and you know that that stayed with me you know uh, for a long time I thought my parents said not that I knew what it meant got divorced you know um, and it was a secret and my dad really lived around the corner and you know and it sounds really bizarre you know my mother remarried and you know one day around the corner I found this letterbox with Seen the Cloud on it so I was convinced that was my dad you know um, so I didn't get to mourn mm. whereas I totally released my great-grandfather and was really comfortable and quite joyous within that Tangihana process. I got to play with my cousins. We got to eat great food. We got to sing. We got to do what, you know. So that was that was great. But with my father in that Parker context back then, you know, very much children shouldn't be, you know, can be seen but not heard. Mm. Um, and I found that very difficult. And it actually stayed with me for a long time that I found it very difficult to let go of him. Um, and when I speak about letting go, it was, um, it's not like I didn't have a piece of him leaving as such. I wasn't, there wasn't a place of peace within my way to her. Whereas my great grandfather, I was fine with, everybody else I was fine with. But um, because of that Presbyterian process of mourning, um, it was sad and yet the strange thing about this story is that when he was actually dying he asked to see me so I was taken to the hospital um, to see him one last time mm. um, but it would have been good to have seen him in his coffin for me because I'd already, you know, I'd spent five days at the Marae with my great-grandfather lying next to him, you know. Um, so not to be able to see my father in that final resting place as such. Um, and after that, of course, you know, we went, he was buried in a cemetery, whereas as Māori we have Urupa on our old farm, and so, you know, we would go to our Urupa every Sunday and, you know, clean it up and things like that. And we would go on Saturday to visit my dad with a, a bunch of carnations. And when my mother remarried, we kind of stopped doing that. It wasn't till later with my husband, so it was quite a bit later, that, you know, I found my way back there. And I hadn't been there for 
30, 20, 20 odd years. And yet I, and of course the cemetery had multiplied by then, but I found my way back to where my dad was. Mm. And, um, and that was, you know, that was sad because, you, you know, I, I, um, well, I mean, the strange thing about death, you know, my, my my dad dies and then my mother dies and my mother remarries and who does my mother, you know, who should be buried next to my mother? Should my mother go next to my father who, you know? So there's some confusion sometimes with children of where parents should go. And in my upbringing, it was all about love, you know, about people loving each other and, and about heaven, you know? So um, it, it got a little bit confusing, mm. yeah. Yeah, it's it's certainly my experience um, growing up, you know, in British, from ch- child of British descendants in Melbourne, Australia. That um, I wasn't allowed to go to my, I went to the service of my grandmother, but not I wasn't allowed to go to the cremation, you know, the crematorium afterwards, which, where she was cremated or anything, because it was not suitable place for a child kind of thing. I think we do a great disservice to children um, not involving them you know completely as as you do in tangi because um children are very smart at seeing a body and knowing that the person has has died you know oh, i think yeah. we've been in very lucky as maori community you know I, and i always joke with my friends you know the kohanga real kind of marches in and every child gets to you know kiss you you know when you're lying there and um i i my um, dad passed away during our first lockdown in Anzac weekend um, last year before. No, last year. Last, last year. year yeah. Last year, yeah. Mm. So we weren't able to even have um, – actually, the day we cremated him, we could go to 10 people. Uh, so um, we live on Papakainga, and um, our granddaughter is growing up on our property, and she's 11, and – she had a lovely time with Dad, you know. Um, we took um, Dad out to uh, on our deck and beautiful leaves falling on him and fantails and our cat was on top of him, all those lovely things. And, you know, um, it was interesting because um, uh, Tusiata actually talks about it, the smell of death. And my friend Kathy's, who had lost her husband, said, Donna, you'll know when your dad, John, is leaving because you'll smell it. And um, we were just going around. We knew Dad was passing away, so um, we'd spent the night. Paul and I had spent the night with him. And um, I was just sitting there. Paul was out in the garden. We had children running around, and um, and our children were there. And I leant over, and I could smell the smell. And I just... I had never smelt that smell. And in my head, I thought, you're going, you really are going, Dad. That's, Kathy told me, there's a smell of death. And, um, you know, my granddaughter's with me, and I say to her, you need to go and get Paul now. So she runs and gets Paul, he comes back in. And honestly, my dad breathed eight times, then he breathed seven, then he breathed six. And by that time, you know, two daughters are with um, my two daughters are with him, um, my granddaughter and my other granddaughter with her son, and my husband are there. And my husband's holding my dad's hand and talking to him. And I'm trying to, you know, get dad to see me because I've looked after you, dad, for the last five, six years. And I love you more than my husband. I'm sure I don't look at me. Look at me. <laughs> and I want to guide you to your next journey. And 
you know, he just looked at Paul and Paul's just talking to him beautifully, just saying, it's okay, John, you're okay. Mm. And it was just so beautiful that it was, um, it, it allowed me to mourn actually rather mm. than to take responsibility um, for my father's journey. It allowed me to release him to take that journey, I think. Mm. Um, but our grandchildren were very much part of that and um, then we had Dad with us for three days, and um, we kept, we didn't put him into a coffin until just before he left. So he was lying in bed as such, and it was just gorgeous, you know. Yeah. And we were at different times. We'd all go out there and sit and talk to him, and um, it was just the right thing for us to do. So it was ticker. So for us, it was ticker. It was the right thing. Um, my dad is Parker, um, but it didn't matter mm. for us mm. as a whānau. Mm. Um, and so we put a kōrawai on him, our family kōrawai. Um, you know, we washed him down and um, we made sure that his body was in, you know, every day, every couple of hours, we checked to see everything was okay. We had him on ice as such. We put ice on his main organ areas. Um, and we um, just loved him. Mm. Mm. Just loved him. And so it was a real blessing that you were living on um, at your papa Kayanga at that time because that probably wouldn't have been possible in you know in a COVID lockdown if, if you'd been scattered across different... No, it wouldn't Homes have been. It wouldn't yeah, have been. Yeah. Um, we were incredibly lucky. We yeah. had a, another daughter who um, had a house bus with us as well, so on the property. Um, also, it was such a. It is a beautiful papakainga. Yeah. Um, I think that people do what they do. So whether it's a beautiful large papakainga like us, or whether it was a granny flat. I think people were doing what they could do. Um, it was about trying to stay within our tikanga, the right way of doing things, and also listening to the kawa, which you can kind of change tikanga, you can't. Kawa of, you know, oh, this isn't quite working, let's change a bit of this, you know. Um, and that's what we adapt. That's what Māori have to adapt you know, um, so we have things that we will never change as such, and there are things that, for example, we don't eat next to someone who's passed away. Mm. That will never change, and that's the same for everywhere. But there are other things where, um, you know, about um, when to, when, what time we should do, you know, the closing of the coffin, whatever may change from area to area. So, um, yeah, it, it's about, you know, we're in a new time, you know, this, and this is this has challenged us. But one of the things that we really talk about within COVID is, you know, we lost our beautiful friend, um, Kiri Opa, um, and um, he was acknowledged by the eight iwi of Tatoihu. So every night each iwi held him and did a Zoom. Hmm. And um, it was just beautiful. It was beautiful. So we had to learn new ways of doing things. And that's what we're learning. Yeah. Mm. I want to ask you now about um, your show, the Te Oroha mm. show, which was really a response to – it was part of the adaptation, wasn't it? Mm. And because there were some things that you couldn't do when, when, when your father died last year. 
Um, so how was that? How did that show come out of that experience? And and I think I understand. Do I understand correctly that it was a way of for you to celebrate those people that you loved who died in in twenty twenty? It was and more so hard for us. You mm. know, um, as our, we have six children, so our networks because of sport, because of education, because of uni, because of so many different things, our children are so connected to so many different people. So for us, the very first person we lost was um, Charlene, and um, she had cancer. Um, and the fact that her husband couldn't be with her as such, and yet he was isolated when she died, it was him, you know. Um, just the, the thinking and the, that people were alone in that process, mm. um, it was very difficult for us because straight away um, my children – Three of my children, I do not know why, went to Japan on holiday just before COVID lockdown. So I'd be, I was at Womad, they were at, in uh, Japan. And so we, we all had to get back, as, you know, but they had to get back. So basically they just got back and the news hit that uh, Charlene had passed away. In my head, I'm wanting to make cakes or go to the supermarket or to do something. And it was the first time ever that I didn't know what to do. There wasn't a tikanga, there wasn't a way of doing the next step. Um, how can you contact somebody and say, look, I'm really, really sorry, without saying, hey, I'm really sorry, I'll be around there soon. You know, there was no no next bit to anything and um even you know we didn't know at that stage whether we could even give food to people you know and then how many people because it was just him it was just probably one of the most challenging parts as an older Māori woman who knew how to do this gig as such to actually be thrown totally like you can't do anything there is absolutely nothing that you can do and so all I could do was write you know and, and that was part of my mourning process and promise her I promised her that um, I would go to the hill in Karanga for her and so when Matariki came of course with Puhutakawa we call out to our um, people who have passed during that time and I got to call out to her and um, and that was beautiful so she was the reason that um, I wrote Unveiling, and then, of course, there was my dad. So being able to tell his story of actually, you know, um, he had uh, Louis body dementia. So for him to die on Anzac Day was just, you know, just um, bizarre that, yeah. And then um, our next-door neighbour, Jonah, a beautiful young man, father, chose to take his life. So to write Jonah's story as well. Um, and, you know, just all those, you know, just all those lives we would have celebrated as a marae. You know, I look at Rangi and Hamilton, you know, this amazing kuya. We never got to celebrate her life. Hmm. Um, and it just kind of, you know, what happens to, it's like this whole time went past where we lost these people but we never got to celebrate them. 
And even my father, my father was cremated, so he's sitting at my place in Motueka. I need to take him to New Plymouth, but my brother is stuck in Sydney, you know. And, you know, this is um, a year and a bit now, you know, and um, so I keep thinking, well, when am I taking Dad home? Can my When is my brother coming home? And everything is... Um, so while I have let Dad go as such... You know, every morning or every so often, I pat him in the lounge and go, God, Dad, I don't know when I'm taking you home. Are you okay here? <laughs> you know? um, and I think that's the casualness about, for us, death is merely the next journey, you know, and, and it's exciting. You know, there is some, you know, it's not so exciting that I want to go there yet, yeah. but it is, it is, you know, it depends what you believe in. I mean, if you've had a Christian belief, you know, heaven with your loved ones, whatever. But, you know, as a, as a Māori woman, you know, I still feel my dad here. I still feel my grandmother here. This morning when I got up and I went outside, I thought of my grandmother. And so when I got the call that Tracy had passed away, I thought of my grandmother. My grandmother had given me her presence that morning had given me some fortitude to actually deal with the fact that Tracy had passed. And the saddest thing for me is Tracy is one of the few people that I can hold conversations with about our great-grandmother. And soon there will be no one left for me to talk to who actually has a living memory of her. So I cried more today about the loss of my friend to talk about my grandmother, my mother, her mother, about the people who have passed. I've lost through her, I have lost that connection with so many memories that only her and I hold mm. of people now. Mm. And that's really sad, you know. Mm. Um, and the reality of that is that, you know, we're all getting a bit older. And we need to write. Mm. We need to write mm. and tell those stories. Or we need to sit in front of cameras or in microphones and tell those stories because everybody gets to a stage in life where they wonder, who am I? And they want to know who they come from, who their grandparents were, who their great-grandparents were. They want to be able to say, you know, you sing like your great-grandmother or the reason you like radio is do you know that your great-great-aunt was the first Māori woman in radio? So there's all that strange DNA. And I'm, I never grew up knowing who my birth father was and I found out because of DNA. But my brothers are actually Fangai. So uh, they're not Fangai, sorry, they're adopted. So I'm Fangai, they're adopted. So um, my mother came and apparently I was so spoiled that I said, um, they asked, what do you want? And I said, I want a brother. So apparently I got two because that's how spoiled <laughs> I was. So twin brothers arrived and my grandfather, my mother said, look, to her dad or great, my, yeah, she said, look, all I know is that they're from Napoli, And he said, you take those boys because I can fuck a papa to them through Nati Rahiri. And so they became ours. And even with them, we do this story of, oh, gosh, you play cricket like dad, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. So, you know, um, you know, what is family anyway, you know? Um, so it's all about this amazing thing called love, I think. Mm. And my nanny, or my great-grandmother's father, who was a child of Parihaka in 1881, he signs his letters Arahanui, 
which, you know, if we break arohood down, it is love, and nui means big. So, you know, I often say to people, big love, but he translated it as astronomical love. Oh, wow, that's gorgeous. I love that. I love that. And I think it is astronomical love because it gives it that wairua perspective. It gives it that... Universe, yeah, 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 of the, the bigness of how much love it is. Yeah. It isn't big love. It just goes on and on and on. So when you talk about death and dying, it's about love. And it's just astronomical love. Mm. And, oh, gosh, we could talk for hours. We really could, but we don't have much time left. But I'd like to actually, on the theme of astronomical love, and the cosmos, and Matariki. So your show, Unveiling, took place in Matariki this year, which was a year after a number of those deaths that you were, the lives of people you were celebrating Mm -hmm. who died a year Mm -hmm. before. Is that the most significant, um, like, communal time for remembering and celebrating, or are there others? There's others. So we have Unveiling. Mm, so okay. every year we have an unveiling and it's not just Māori I think it's very I, I, I think there are lots of different cultures mm-hmm. but a year after you have some tombstone whatever definitely the um, Hindu in Bali mm. do yeah so yeah. after the year you know we all rock up and <laughs> there's another huge kai and there's another remembrance and um, we unveil the stone mm. so that's actually really important for us mm. Mm. yeah mm. yeah and so that will depend on when the person dies. Yeah. So normally yeah. it's a year later, but because of COVID, yeah. we're all over the place. Yeah. I mean, as I said, my dad died at Anzac last mm. year. We haven't even buried him yet. You mm. know? I, I think he's just enjoying it and Motueka too much. So, yeah. <laughs> so, but mm. Matariki is, is also you just a – I mean, that happens – that when the stars are in the sky at a particular time. So – and that happens every year. And that's a chance, I guess, to reflect on – on the whole year proceeding, I, isn't I it? I think yeah. as Aotearoa, as mm. New Zealand, we're looking at who are we as a nation. Mm. And so, of course, you know, while we've been celebrating the 5th of November as Guy Fawkes, we're now looking at Parihaka Day. So we are, there is a holiday for Matariki coming mm. up. And that is a time for all of us just to reflect and to acknowledge the people who have passed away. And so it's a lovely ceremony, even though you're up at five o'clock in the morning and you sort of climb a hill. So we climbed to Uma here. Um, and, you know, fires are lit and um, someone's got a pointer pointing out all the stars because most of us have no idea. And, um, you know, and there's Potakawa. Hmm. And then um, someone will just say, you know, there it is. Mm. So if you want to call out one of your loved ones or friends' names, you know, go for it. And, you know, I stood there and the worst thing was so many of our friends had passed away because that included, it was like a year and a bit, you know, it, it was quite a long time. And, you know, it was just quite shocking to see you know, every time someone called out a name, I went, oh, my God, that's right. Mm. And mm. I think during this COVID time, time is, what is time? I, I had, you know, what is a day? What day is it? You know, so I think we've all been a little bit like that. And mm. to hear all those people who have passed away, and yet we haven't been able to celebrate. Because within Tangihana, there is the hakari at the end. So once you've been to the cemetery and you've laid the person to rest, you all come back and you're welcomed back onto the marae because you're coming back into life. And then there's this magnificent feast for you. 
you know, and everybody's there and there's beautiful flowers and it's decorated and there's a joy, you know, there's an absolute joy and people are celebrating, you know, and it's that lifting of that veil and um, and we haven't been able to do that. Mm-hmm. And um, so that completion for us as such. So it, it's been a quiet time of reflection I guess Mm. and I think just gratitude that we are healthy and we are living Mm. and it is not our time yet yeah well thank you very very much for joining me on the show today Donna it's been lovely to korero with you I wish you astronomical love as you travel back to your birthplace Taranaki to honor the life of your of your cousin Thank you very much for joining me today. Oh, namahi. Namahi. You're listening to Death Walker's Guide to Life. My name is Kerry Sunderland and I have just been chatting with Māori poet, playwright and wahini toa Donna McLeod. Now it's time for the second bookend, Death on Screen, when I briefly review a film, TV, series or online resource that explores something to do with death and dying. Today I'm going to talk about a new documentary titled Living with Ghosts, Science Weighs in on the Healing Power of After-Death Communication, which I watched on Vimeo as part of a watch party, um, a private online screening uh, just a couple of nights ago. In this seven-time award-winning documentary, a widow who is suffering prolonged grief agrees to participate in a research study exploring a clinical intervention that aims to reconnect bereaved survivors with their departed loved ones. The process is known as Induced After-Death Communication, or IADC, and according to the filmmakers, it is rapidly gaining recognition among psychologists, academics and bereavement professionals. The widow at the heart of this story is Karen, and she is one of 162 chronically bereaved people who volunteered for the IADC study, which was the first publicly funded research of its kind in the world. Like about a third of the 270 million bereaved people in the world, I'm not quite sure how the filmmakers came up with that figure, but that's what they tell us, Karen is diagnosed with a disorder called complicated grief a debilitating condition that can last for years or even a lifetime. In her case, she has been uh, stuck in an emotional holding pattern for 17 years since the sudden death of her husband, Kevin. And her two daughters, who were quite young when their father died, are now adult women and they urge her to take part in the study out of care and concern for, for her. The filmmakers note that the researchers have known for decades that survivors do better when an emotional bond is maintained with the deceased. And yet many psychologists, grief counsellors and clergy routinely discourage such behaviour and they, they label it as denial and sometimes even heresy. The film, for example, features a rabbi explaining that uh, Judaism is very much a this-world religion. You die and you're well, you're dead although the Kabbalah, ancient Jewish mysticism, has some slightly different things to say on this topic. The narrator also paraphrases the words of Catholic priests who have uh, pretty much said things like, if there's a spirit, it better be the Holy Spirit, otherwise it's spiritualism and that's heretical. This doco looks at why 
the schools of thought might need a rethink and how doing so might just equip people living in weird societies, there's that term again, uh, Western, educated, industrialised, rich and democratic societies around the world. Um, it might allow them to allow grief to happen. As grief therapist Graham Maxey says in the film, it's not up for debate anymore. You need to feel the feelings. You can't just put them away. And I certainly know that from my own experience. One of my favourite quotes in the film is this, irrational consolation and joy can lead to good health. Why forbid that? That's crazy. Apparently, there's something about love that enables clairvoyant abilities. The filmmakers present the findings of a research study that showed 82% of widows and widowers had experienced some sort of visit or experience from a dead spouse. Like the 2004 doco What the Bleep, Living with Ghosts rolls out a lot of quantum physicists to support its claims and other well-known best-selling authors in this field like Joe Dispenza and Bruce Grayson. On the sceptic side, Richard Dawkins makes a small and ignominious appearance and psychiatrist Robert, Roger Samuel chips away at trying to understand why some people think they can communicate with their dead. Perhaps, he asks, perhaps they have been drinking or drug taking drugs or something in the past? And he asked this quite earnestly. Whether or not this documentary will be discounted like what the bleep has been in some quarters as pseudoscience or it is uh, becomes part of the cutting-edge science, that decision has yet to be determined, but it's pretty convincing if you ask me. While the induced after-death communication process is listed on a number of sceptic sites, including Skeptic Link, the film clearly shows how much it benefits Karen and how much it helped her re-engage with her own life. You can visit my website, deathwalkersguidetolife.com, to find out more about the film and how you can host your own private virtual screening of it. And I want to say a big thank you to Becky Ord Jennison, who is the host and producer of the podcast, The Death Dialogues Project, for setting up her own private virtual screening, which I was able to join. You've been listening to Deathwalker's Guide to Life. Find out more about the show and how you can follow me, Kerry Sunderland, at deathwalkersguidetolife.com. Once again, ka mihi, a big thank you to CNF Legal for sponsoring the show. CNF Legal's specialist team of solicitors and legal executives can help you with every aspect of planning for the inevitable end of your life, so give Maria or Robin a call on 03 808 or visit their website, cflegal.co. Thanks to New Zealand On Air for making this podcast available by funding the Access Media Project. Other great podcasts from Fresh FM are available through the accessmedia.nz app or our website freshfm.net.